The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking with Mika Tenera. Mika is a serial entrepreneur who has established and ran global operations for over 20 years, who has several scale-ups and exits under his belt. In addition to his own startups, Mika has advised over 50 other startup companies throughout his career. He currently serves as the CEO of Roxall Inc., which is an energy technology company that provides intelligent process imaging and real-time data analytics to clients worldwide. This helps them reduce their overall operational costs, avoid unplanned shutdowns, and monitor product quality to increase revenues and establish reliable process controls. Mika also hosts his own podcast called Mika Tenera's See Beyond Show and runs blogs on the future of energy and the future of mobility and has published over 20 papers. He holds a master's degree in engineering from the Chalmers University of Technology and earned his MBA from the Quantic School of Business and Technology. So without further delay, here's my interview with Mika Tanera. Mika, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. It's an honor to be taking part in your podcast show here, Jose. So just for a sense of geography, where are you at today? Well, today I'm sitting in, yeah, it's Sunshine Outdoor in Oslo in Norway. We're in the Nordic countries. Awesome. Over in Europe. So yeah. you're originally, is that where you're originally from? My present scale-up company is located in Finland, where I'm actually from. But I've also, I grew up in Sweden and living in Norway for many years. So I'm, I'm kind of grasping the whole Nordic scene here or scenery <laughs> in that way. So a good, a good friend of mine that I went to high school with, he, he was, his father was from Sweden. His mother was from Peru. And his father worked in oil and gas. He worked at Hilti and they moved him to the U.S. And so we got to become friends and going to his house was always an event for me because, you know, having the Latin American influence and the Swedish influence and, you know, the European. So I'd go to his house and I would hear him and his mom speak in Spanish and him and his father speak in Swedish and then him and his brother speak in English. And he could just change languages like he was changing socks. And I noticed, you know, that's very common for people that live in Europe. But I noticed even on your LinkedIn profile that you had like eight different languages listed that you could speak. And I'm just curious, like, how do you not get confused? (laughs) Sometimes I do get confused. But, you know, I think that has driven me a bit, let's say, this curiosity for, uh, let's say, various cultures and and. Yeah, even though in in a condensed area, growing up with two cultures in that sense, even though it's it's mildly, yeah, mild variations. But, you know, I started working in Germany as my, after I graduated. Okay. And then I've lived and worked in Netherlands. I've been to Switzerland. I've been, I've actually been over to US. I spent two years in in the Houston area. So I think 
you know, it, it's a drive and I think importance to also grasp that diversity because that's how you learn so many new things. You also see problems from various angles. And if I just look at, let's say, a friend and previous colleague who's worked very much internationally also, grew up in Africa and living in Europe, but doing a lot of global business. But like you said, you went to your friend's house. When I go to his house and, you know, so, you know I look at various objects from Africa, from Asia, from, from Americas, etc. It's, it's just very interesting. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to be able to speak a language from whatever, you know, country or culture you're visiting because it really I think it immerses you into like sort of the how do I want to say this like I guess the lifestyle, right? Because then you, you sort of understand like their humor and things of that nature which is can vary greatly from culture to culture, right? And so just having that exposure really gives you like this you know, Neapolitan view of the world, right? Where you, you can see all these different perspectives and then you start to really understand like overall, like, okay, you know, yeah, we're different because we're from different places, but we're pretty much the same. You know, we like the same things. We all want the same thing. Oh yeah. I think it actually, you know, that's spot on because that removes barriers and, and right. it's so important to actually see that. Well, there's a lot of commonalities, but you know, th- this brings up also Another subject here, I think, you know, it was one customer, visit. I was in Brazil working with Petrobras and they actually brought in, they had an intern from the university and they presented me to, to this person and that, yeah, young boy or, or what should I say, he actually responded in Norwegian to me and I was kind of, wow, a Brazilian talking Norwegian, what is this? And then actually... Also, one of my colleagues was with me from from Netherlands. And then he just switched to Dutch like that. (laughs) And, you know, he said, and and he was learning, I think he was right now learning Hungarian and some other languages. That was incredible because I'm far from that level. But he said that he he had built, let's say, a mechanism to learn languages in just a few hours, watching TV or some movies. And he could grasp, let's say, the basics of it. So that that was amazing. And I think on my side, I mean, going to other cultures, of course, to keep up languages, I mean, you have to practice, you have to be there or or be with the people, etc. But I think because I'm very customer-centric and that's kind of also bringing me closer to those I work with, or now I say customer-centric, but it's it's actually the cooperation, collaboration with others, because business is international. Absolutely. So understanding a few words or, or just trying to learn something of the local culture, I think it's out of respect, but also I think you bond much better. And I'm absolutely. also I'm learning a lot from it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And being the industry that we're in, the energy industry, it takes you all over the world. And there's so many places where operations are happening in different places. And so, you know, it, it gives you this really great perspective on the world and on life because you get to experience what life is like in other cultures. And it's one of the benefits, if not one of the biggest benefits, in my opinion, to working in energy is getting to meet people from different backgrounds and cultures and, and really getting to know them on a personal level outside of work sometimes when you get opportunities to interact 
especially when you're traveling and they're you're in their country and they host you and they you know show you oh you know we're gonna go here and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that and you really get to experience it like a local versus being a, a tourist who just came on their own right and so that that makes all the world a difference when you're traveling you can have somebody with you who's a native speaks language can show you around and introduce you to the customs and courtesies of the country and so this way you have a better overall experience and like you said it takes down those barriers because you know i was reading something recently about you know obviously there's a lot of big initiatives in not only the united states but i'm sure worldwide where we're you know creating programs of you know inclusiveness and diversity and things of that nature and i think that you know being here in the United States, because we're just a big melting pot, I think that's something that we've always just sort of had to work with or work on as well. But that's something I think in Europe that you guys have done very well. I think especially in different parts of Europe that you guys have integrated, you know, people from different parts of the world into your societies very well. And I'm curious, how does that influence like building your business culture, right? As the leader of a company, what are you doing or what do you do to try and build a culture of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. Oh, great question. <laughs> Maybe not so easy to answer all the time, but anyhow, you know, first of all, let me just, I'll get to this, Jose, because it's so, so interesting. But, you know, I just want to comment what you said there, you know, with the energy world or working in the, this industry, because you get to see so many various places you would never go to or, or thought were there actually in a lot of countries. But over time, what, what I see also that, you know, you build relationships. And I could go to many places where, where I, let's say, it could be partners or customers, suppliers, who I learned to know very well. And if, if I go Bogota, Colombia, yes, I know people there or in other places. And also, it has also led me to, let's say, I've helped, let's say, I call them friends to get jobs from, yeah, Americans getting relocated within US and getting a job because I help them. <laughs> or it could be people from South America coming to Europe, etc. Maybe that's also part of the diversity in that sense. But working with innovation, you know, it's really about culture and changing mindsets. And now I'm getting into your question here. You said that how to build that diversity because like the industry is global. And, you know, one project, it might actually happen in, uh, even though, the let's say, the operational location is one place. But during the course of doing that project, you might have to engage with three, four, five other locations in other countries. And it means that if, if I would say that, well, I'll just do 100% Norwegian team or, or Finnish team. Well, you know, we get blind spots in that sense and we're not grasping everything and it's not just about talking the languages but it's the cultural aspects and understanding ways of communicating because my way of communicating with my body language of course is different than yours or anyone else's in in that sense and if we look at various groups of course you know we might not catch that even though today we're doing all the time virtual meetings but still when you have video, you can't see the other person in that sense. So I think because innovation is about changing mindsets, if you want to do an impact, you need to build diverse teams. So I'm, I'm very, let's say, all the time looking at what, where are our blind spots, spots in that sense. What's our known unknowns or yeah, can we bring 
some knowledge to this area so that whether that's gender or expertise or experience, uh, culture or, or where, where you have been in the value chain, in a vertical value chain. So, and you know, of course, doing a startup, you, you can't have it all at once, but you kind of have to look at the big idea. And, and of course, when you're scaling up, of course, I have my wish list that, okay, when the time is right, okay, maybe I can add these types or persons to my team, etc. Because scaling up, I mean, it's about the team, really. If I have the right people, we can climb any mountain. Absolutely. You know, that brings me to another question. So you mentioned having, you know, obviously, mostly everybody in the industry or just in the workforce in general is, is working virtually or doing some sort of hybrid or, you know, we're doing a lot of this, you know, Zoom meetings and things of that nature. What do you do as a leader of, of a scaling business to motivate and lead your workforce from a distance? How do you do that? What are some of the things that you do to achieve motivation and then you know just be a good leader? Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. And first of all, I've been, let's say, used to also leading teams remotely or from distance. But being myself in Norway and my company in Finland, so it's like, let's say, yeah. It's half a day of travel for me by airplane and train or car to get mm-hmm. there. But now it's been forced that I haven't, let's say, I had nine months where I didn't go to my office or location or a workshop. I couldn't meet any one of the guys. Mm-hmm. And still we've kept open 100% all the time. We haven't had a single COVID case. And we've actually, we're also growing as a company both in sales, revenues as a team. So, of course, working, being a serial entrepreneur and challenging mindsets, of course, I think also the customer-centric approach and being hands-on. It's like, you know, I have to push myself and every company or, or startup is unique. You're building unique knowledge, capabilities. So it hasn't been easy on anyone. And I think I have learned new things and the team too, but how do we manage this? Or, you know, it, it, for me, it's not like micromanagement. That doesn't work. And it's more like I have to be inspirational, motivational. I need to communicate well so that they understand why are we doing things? What's our strategy? What's the roadmap to, to get there? And set priorities. And of course, being a support to my team and, and mentor also, of course. And it's not like, you know, it's so capable persons. They, they can take own responsibility and let's say be, be self-motivated or, or self-going, but we have to knit it together because it's a team effort. Well, if I have a mechanical designer doing some drawings, of course, that impacts our, let's say, product categories or, or what the sales are doing, etc. So that's the understanding I have to bring to the team. So Try to have good, clear communication regularly, but of course, also not an overflow of internal meetings because that that can take down productivity. Of course, so Absolutely. it's a very fine balance, very fine. So, how would you how would you, in your own words, describe your leadership style? I mean, because you mentioned you know not micromanaging, but if you had to if you had to put it in your own words, how would you describe your style of leadership? Yeah, I would say, I mean, working in energy, and I say that, okay, the values are key here too, that lead with example, 
And of course, safety first always, because we're dealing with, as we work in, in production facilities, etc. And, you know, it's, there can be so many, yeah, <laughs> events occurring and incidents. Right. So, so ensure that. But for me, so it's openness and transparency, communicating what's going on and not rumors based. So, and everyone should be able to come back to me and, and let's say, understand better. Or, and I try to run also induction or immersion with new, new team members, follow-up meetings. And it's, it's about, let's say, this roadmap, engaging my people. They're part of this. It's not just top-down. I want them to take part in this journey, and, and we're building this together. Because that makes you know, the company so much more solid. It's not always like, okay, everyone has to come back to me. If we're going to decide something, you have to ask Mika. It doesn't work that way. But of <laughs> That's course, a single so, point of course, failure though, right? Yeah, because then you build in a dependency of one, one person or it could be a technical person or a salesperson, whoever. But build good work processes which are driving, let's say, the progress of events, projects, etc. So let's talk a little bit about what you guys are doing over at Roxol and tell me a little bit about the genesis of the company and then how you've, you know, went from a startup to now a scale up, you know, give the audience, you know, some, some background there and, and let's talk about that. Yeah. The thing is that, you know, I've been, I've been working many years in the energy sector, especially in terms of, yeah, brownfield, field work. And we're a, let's say a team of guys who've de- been doing field work from artificial lift chemicals treatment on facilities, separation efficiency improvements, etc. So what I've seen from operations and, and also other guys that, of course, what happens in upstream, we, we can talk about onshore unconventionals, etc., is that production facilities have a low efficiency rate or they have a lot of downtime, unexpected shutdowns. And if you look at separators, they actually fail due to faulty instrumentation in more than 50% of the cases. There's data about this. So Roxol, what, what we thought here that, okay, it's easy to put sensors in clean environments. I mean, virtually anyone could do some sensors and put them there and do data acquisition. But so that's not really relevant for us. What we wanted to do was to create something that works in harsh conditions, that actually does data acquisition for those all those complex conditions when you have to deal with oil water emulsions, which are really bad, or bitumen, when you have scale and walks, or any deposits, when you have sand buildup, because typically that's when facilities fail or instrumentation fails, and you don't get data or you get unexpected shutdowns or, or even more severe failures. So that's what we're deploying. And then, of course, also understanding what are the user pain points because they have to do so much more manual work or the, the maintenance costs are so high here and all corrective actions. So having our intelligent sensors there, of course, we can utilize our software and render data, useful, actionable data from critical processes. And what we do there is, of course, with our active sensors, it's an electrical signal. And what we pick up, 
becomes actually conductivity and permittivity readings, which is for, let's say, any fluid or matter, it's, it's rarely unique or, or kind of like a fingerprint matching. And doing then AI for more of image recognition, we can do very near real-time process monitoring. So we're talking about advanced process control. And it's industry first because with this frequency with sampling, at least 10 frames per second, and not having to shut down or to do cleaning, recalibrations, etc. Actually, we have something that gives the operator data when you need it the most. So looking at yeah, small, medium-sized oil fields, I mean, the savings is, we talk about 5 to $10 million per year easily. And it's not just the financial savings here. Think about ESG and the carbon footprint because production optimization leads to lower carbon footprint. So the equivalent for, let's say, utilizing our data, etc. I mean, we take out 10,000 cars emissions per year. That's the equivalent value from one installation. So this has kind of grown. I wasn't one of the co-founders, but I was part of the, let's say, early phase as, what should I say, incubator or so. I mean, I've known the co-founder since the starting days and I was doing a previous venture when, when they started up, but yeah, they came with their first prototype to my previous facility. So we kind of kept in touch and I, I've been, I joined their team on, let's say, investor side and having been a board member also. Okay. And what happened also during the course here, founded in 2012, actually. But we also got Shell Ventures involved and Repsol Ventures as equity partners and doing, let's say, quite interesting, let's say, joint development with Equinor for the time being. How do you approach a Shell Ventures or you know, an IOC to help you in the development of a product? How does that work? Because you know, let's say if I was an entrepreneur and I had a company and a startup, a technology startup like yourself. And I wanted to engage, you know, those type of entities to help me, you know, develop my technology and get field testing and, and things of that nature. I mean, how do you go about developing a relationship like that? And part B to that question is, what are some things that you may want to ask yourself as a business before, you know, getting involved with an entity like a Shell Ventures? Or, you know what I mean? That might be something I'd, I'd be interested in learning as well. Yeah, yeah. No, sure. It's probably on the mind of, of many entrepreneurs and, and, and people who want to do a startup because I've been also mentoring and helping many startups. And, and I think many times when you, you have a great idea, but you also think that, of course, entrepreneurs comes and says, that, well, I have this great product. Who can I sell it to? And, and many times the network is missing or lacking in that sense. Who do you reach out to? And I would say also, don't love your product love your business. That means you have to shut up and listen to the customers. <laughs> or, or, no, I don't mean that they always know the best, but they, they actually bring you the valuable feedback because they have pain points. And that means with your solution or when you get to the solution, you might be able, necessary to pivot several times to actually get to a solution that is workable and, and brings value. But of course, so the network is important. I think, of course, 
I'm very happy that I have built up a huge network and a solid reputation in, in that sense, because that's what I think also being an entrepreneur. I mean, it's my last project is always about my own reputation and the company is at stake. So deliver what you have promised and according to expectations, set the right expectations. Because, I mean, I've met the same people over and over again in I might have been in various companies or ventures or those my customers might have moved moved along to some other companies. But so the world is small. And yeah. You tend to meet the same people again. So I'm going around your, your question here, but so how to get to the customers? I think of course for you know for many startups, get an advisor or mentor who has a network. It can be good to take part in pitching events where you have, let's say, energy companies, venture people or business developers or technology scouts there to kind of try to get some kind of contact network. And I think being an innovator or disruptor, I think it's very important or crucial to work with the operators, with the IOCs or NOCs, because you're actually getting so valuable feedback from them if you're able to talk with them directly. What are their pain points? What are they missing today? What would they like to see? Because if you have some idea, whether that's yeah, some analytics or software or, or other services or hardware, because that's how you build your solution. And if you have that type of relationship with one customer, I mean, then at some point, Yes, they might want to pilot that or, or run some type, type of testing, proof of concept. Invaluable, because that's a starting point when you kind of, let's say, start to build your minimum viable product, MVP as such, pivot, 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 see what kind of solution that brings so that you can say, hey, we have a paying customer. Can we scale? Can we go commercial? Because then failure is not an option anymore. You need to be ready by that time. Build your systems, your team as such and always remember to deliver what what you promise and on expectations for sure many times you know i'm not right always or or with my team that okay we might do some because we're testing new things but of course we are there to solve it until we also know this works so that the customer can rely on on what we are doing for them how do you overcome like those challenges sometimes when you get things wrong i mean you know I think every entrepreneur, every business owner, you know, just every human in general has moments where they thought they were right about something and then they find out they were wrong. But I think that's something that's very commonplace, especially as a leader of a business that, you know, there's going to be times where you just didn't get it right. How do you overcome those challenges? I mean, what are some of the things that you do? Let's say if you have a setback and, you know, not just, you know, you know, something didn't go right today, but like, you know, major setback, you know, and you know, you didn't deliver on something and it wasn't, you know, I mean, just to happen sometimes. How do you overcome those? And then how do you, how do you get the team to sort of shake it off and keep moving forward? Because I think that's really challenging sometimes when small teams have big setbacks and it happens, but they have to overcome them. Right. And so what are some of the things that you do to get your team over the hurdle and get them back on the horse again? Yeah, this is central. And, you know, I'm an engineer at heart and as a leader, I have to be the problem solver. That's very, very much the, the daily work. It's about problem solving. 
And of course, I've been through a lot of setbacks, but you know, it's early days. I think I've been also like, yeah, going crazy or, or panicking. Is there a future? <laughs> but these days, you know, it, it's about, you have to, it's lessons learned. You have to go for a root cause analysis. And saying that because any startup, there will be setbacks. So remember, bring your passion with it, with you whatever you're doing, because you need a lot of patience. You need to have determination and you need to love what you're doing because, I mean, find that big idea. Why are you doing this? And why now? And what's so unique with you and, and your co-founding team or whatever? So learning from those setbacks. And I think, yeah, also in Roxol, we, we've experienced a lot of things smaller and larger unpleasant things but it's it's about okay the thing is to go back and see it's not about blame it's about finding the root cause why did this fail and then of course what can we learn from this because you're testing out new things you never not everything will work so you have to kind of be hands-on analyze it and see okay how do we steer this back to being something good so of course we are very customer centric so i say again it's openness and honesty so i've engaged customers said oh this did not work well or we have to rectify this and this means that okay we need to spend more more time or resources it it will cost more okay how do we solve this and for me it's always like is this a showstopper in meaning that we are not able to solve this with let's say, funding, resources, and capabilities. Well, so far, I mean, I've always found that we can actually solve this with our, let's say, with that, let's say, with the capabilities and, and having the funding. And also, also, I think it has created sometimes in discussions with customers where they have come, come back to me. I mean, I think these are probably my best sales, actually, where they have you know, we've cemented our reputation that they know what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And then they come and say that, well, we have this, we have this field and, you know, it doesn't work properly. We have so many problems here. And these have been very large companies coming to me and said, well, actually, we've never done this. And as a solution, you know, it's unproven. But do we have the capabilities? Yes, yes, we do. But we can't give you any guarantees. And I can't do, let's say, this is not a standard sale. So if you want all those guarantees, etc., I'm not the right guy or my, my team is, are not the right ones. And they've just pushed on and said that, yes, we want to do it with you. And yeah. then again, saying that, well, this is going to be costly. We, we can probably not do it in that time, time frame, or it's not going to be an ordinary project as such. It's going to cost a lot. And we've been able to meet expectations and, and discuss through, okay, is that the showstopper or can we find suitable solutions? And I've seen how very large corporates are actually very dynamic. And that's how you build collaborations that have a huge impact. And it's not just been the best sales. It has delivered the best results ever to those customers. Where I've heard when we have run the project on time, on budget, and let's say plug and play, you get it up and running. And I've kind of, let's say, 
moved on to other other projects. But then I get a call and I say, Mika, thank you to you and your team. We have best ever results. And we would like to do this again with you whenever that occurs. So, I mean, I think, okay, this has been a good project and understanding. We've been through, let's say, mapping the risks where we've gone into unknown territories, but been able to manage that risk well. And I think that that's the way, you know, it's not like customer supplier just, it's collaborations, it's partnerships. That's how you yeah, I think if I think if you if you create the relationship where it's customer supplier, I think your products or your services quickly become commoditized and it's just a matter of lowest price technically acceptable Absolutely. at that point, right? Yeah. And when you're building new technology or you're creating new technology, that's definitely not where you want to be because that just means that you haven't done anything innovative, right? And so I really identify with what you were saying about, you know, some of the best sales coming out of some of these triumphs through a challenge, right? Because there are times when you build that collaboration with your customer and you overcome this together and you collaborate with them, you communicate with them, you're open, you're honest, and it ends up making for a better relationship in the long run because they realize like, okay, well, you know, we threw a little bit of fire at you, but you didn't blink, you, you kept moving. And then, you know, we could, we were able to work together and that helped us get through this problem. And now, obviously, the results are satisfactory or, or better. And that creates a long-term business relationship, which, you know, obviously is not just good for your company, but it's also great for your reputation, like you said before. So that's really interesting. I'm, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on what it's like to be brought into a startup at the CEO level. From you know, obviously you start off. You knew that you knew the co-founders. You were invested at the beginning. But what are some of the things that you sort of have to think about before accepting that type of responsibility? Because you know that's a big level of responsibility to take on. What are some of the things that go through your mind as far as like if there was somebody else that was being approached with a similar situation or similar opportunity? What are some of the things that you go through in your mind before you say yes or before you say no? Because I'm sure this is probably not the first time you've been asked to join an organization at this level. And you, mm-hmm. ha- I mean, it's something that you need to, to figure out, right? And so I'd be curious to get your, your thoughts on that. Well, it's really difficult. And, and of course, I think you have to look at the team. Who are actually, who are in the core team of that company? And of course, I mean, you have to do some kind of due diligence, if I call it that, that let's say. Is there actually a market need for what, what this company is doing? And what does the competition look like? And not don't just look at the incumbents, the legacy technology, because, you know, today innovation happens so quickly. So you have to look around on, on other startups, what's happening. And you have to be, let's say, talk with, let's say, if other stakeholders, whether that's board members, other owners, shareholders, or Let's say if there's critical suppliers or partners. But of course, I think you have to, let's say, there needs to be some type of trust also with, let's say, the co-founders in that sense. And there will always be some gaps and holes. There's going to be unknown things that will uh, pop up because, of course, I've ramped up, scaled up companies before. So I know that, yeah, I have my playbook. But before you can, let's say, yeah, get to all those triggers, you know that certain things needs to be in place. Otherwise, it can't happen. 
And of course, it can be a very tough journey. You need to have that, let's say again, a lot of grit and, and determination. But be clear on the big idea. Why are the co-founders of this company, what's their mission actually? And are they in this for long term or do they want to do a quick flip here? And what's the exit strategy? What do we want to achieve? Will they stay on or do they just want to hand it over to you? Is it, and <laughs> so you have to kind of have some, yeah, get some warnings and alerts to it. Are there a lot of problems if they just want to hand it over to you? <laughs> Etc. But I think it's not easy to make up your mind. And I think myself, I think I pondered on this also for a long time, kind of getting warm and, and seeing, okay, are we getting traction? Can we scale this? How easy is it to scale? Even yeah. knowing that, okay, it will always be, let's say, hard work, a lot of hard work and determination to climb the mountains. And for me, I, I think I put also very high expectations on myself because it's not just, well, let's dominate our domestic market, even though that would be quite small perhaps. But I want to be a market leader in the niches I go for. That's the only, only way to survive, really, in the long term. Be a market leader. Yeah, so, I think that's, so that's, that's a very be the plan. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a very good way of looking at it, right? If you're gonna go, you might as well go big, you know? Oh yeah. Go oh, big yeah. or go home as as they say. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's close down a little bit, but before we do, I'd like to hear what you feel are the next chapters for Roxol and what you guys what, what are you looking at? What's what's gonna happen? What's coming down the pipeline to say no pun intended. <laughs> no, no, sure, sure. That's okay. And I think, you know, awareness about our company is growing tremendously. And, and we try to also, of course, be part and influence the community because we, we know we have something great for existing production and, and to, let's say, make it more efficient, provide better financial results, improve ESG. And I think what we're doing now is to, let's say, we're running a lot of piloting for, for many energy companies. And with some, we are already in the early scale-up phase. And it's now, let's say, f- for me, it's to build that rigid systems and, and team to be able to cope with the scale-up and growth coming. We're also launching additional products commercially and expanding into, let's say, let's say more application or or areas within both oil and gas but at the same time we are industry agnostic because this type of solutions advanced process control and monitoring is needed in you know any virtually any industry or sector needing some type of process monitoring so we're also coming to the phase when we are going to scale up a second sector or industry but being a nimble team we have to stay focused Step by step. Absolutely. Absolutely. How can the listeners, where do they go to find out about the company and how can they connect with you if they have questions? Yeah. The best is to, let's say, LinkedIn is a good platform. You find our, let's say, our company page there, Rocksoul. But you can also go to our webpage. It's rocksoul.com. We are, let's say, based in Eastern Finland, our tech center, etc. Ambitions to grow also in the Houston area. We have an, actually an, want to move into the Ion Houston later this summer. I, yeah, I do run my own podcast, The Sea Beyond, 
podcast. It's on Apple and, and Spotify, etc. I also do write a lot of articles on the future of energy and future of mobility because I think both of those topics actually belong together. So you can check out my, my profile on LinkedIn with all the other necessary links. Awesome. And I'll be sure to include links in the show notes so that people can go to those links and check you out. But for those that are just listening, maybe in the car or whatnot, when they get to the office, they can look look up Roxall online and connect with you on LinkedIn. But Mika, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and just you know sharing your insights, sharing your experience, talking about your company, the new technology, and, and how you guys have gotten to where you are today. It was really fascinating, and I've really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to catch up with you again in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Keep up the fire, all right? You too. Thank you. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month, we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A and ONG. This is gonna be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.